Before we get started, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help us is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member, or just spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as possible, and growing our audience will ensure Big Biology episodes keep coming. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and to comment on and rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, just let us know. You can get in touch with us on our social media pages or through the website. And now here's the show. As the year winds down, let's just say it was indeed another challenging one. But Marty, it's been tough for the past four billion years or so, and it shows no sign of letting up. And that's why we all need a little help from our friends. Or our symbionts. The history of life is characterized by major transitions, many of which revolve around the formation of cooperative relationships. Maybe the most obvious example is the origin of eukaryotes, from bacterial and archaeal lineages getting together. Or think back to episode 18 and the cicada-bacteria relationships described by John McCutcheon. In some ways, cooperative systems like these are straightforward, because the relationships become so tight that partners become inseparable and essentially totally interdependent. In other systems, the relationships aren't as tight. The partners interact, and they can cooperate under the right conditions, but the interactions may not be obligate and the details are updated continuously. They're ecologically and evolutionarily negotiable. Think gut microbiomes, as we discussed in episode 19 with Rob Dunn. Trillions of individual microbes from thousands of species live in our guts, and they perform really key functions for us. Another example is cooperation between fungi and plant roots. Today's guest, Toby Kears, is an evolutionary biologist at the Free University in Amsterdam. She studies the underground networks of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi and their intimate interactions with plant roots. In her 2019 TED Talk, she described the economics of this relationship, how each partner negotiates and trades with the other. Or steals and borrows. All without brains or emotions. Or lawyers or free trade agreements. This hidden economy trades resources across the globe, and it plays an important role in the health and well-being of almost all terrestrial ecosystems. A key trade in this relationship is carbon for nutrients. The partners trade resources that they can obtain easily for those that they cannot. Plants, for example, can access large amounts of energy from photosynthesis, which they put into carbon-based molecules like sugars. But plants have a hard time extracting other nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen from soil. By contrast, fungi excel at nutrient extraction, but they lack the energy to do it. So the key trade comes into focus. Plants provide carbon to the fungi in return for nutrients. But just stating the fact of this exchange doesn't say much about the rules that shape it. How much carbon should a plant give its fungi per unit of phosphate delivered? And conversely, how much phosphate should the fungus give to the plant per unit of carbon delivered? And what if one partner cheats the other? Another big question is how fungi should move nutrients through their networks whenever soil resources are patchily distributed. Which they pretty much always will be. Should nutrients mined in rich patches be transported to poor patches? And how much more carbon can fungi get for nutrients delivered that way? Toby and her team are trying to answer these questions using a broad variety of approaches. One awesome experiment that we'll talk about during the show is a technique for visualizing flows of phosphorus in fungal hyphae. They do it by tagging phosphate with what are called quantum dots, which can be made to fluoresce in different colors. This gives the team the means to visualize phosphate flows coming from multiple different sources at the same time. Pretty great. 
They're using approaches like this to reveal the basic trade rules of the root-fungus interactions. We also spoke to Toby about her new nonprofit called SPUN, the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. Check out the website, www.spun.earth, to see some amazing videos of phosphate flowing through fungal hyphae. The site also lays out the ecological importance of fungal root networks and describes how climate change might affect them. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. Toby, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. We're really excited to talk about the, the many projects that you're uh, involved in right now. Before we get into the details of that science, we're curious about how you got into science in the first place. What were the formative early experiences that oriented you towards a career in science? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. And um, yeah, when you, when you ask about sort of origin of science, Probably, well, I left, I left university. I left my undergrad university as I was getting my degree because I wanted to become a scientist so much that I thought it was easier to leave science and actually become a field biologist rather than go through the headache of getting a degree. So I left my undergraduate and, uh, and traveled to the tropics where I was a fellow for a year in, in Panama and um, I was already studying things under our feet. Okay. Okay. Um, what were you doing in Panama? That was, I guess, the STRI STRI, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute? Exactly. I was on Barrow, Colorado at the time, and um, I was studying uh, mycorrhizal networks. So these are these fungal networks that are in symbiosis with plant roots. And at the time, people were very interested in you know, the diversity of plants above ground, but it was kind of a new frontier to look at the um, biodiversity below ground. So you you said you left science to get into science. What, would you give that advice to other students considering going to biology or just generally what kind of advice would you give students, uh, you know, undergraduates thinking about graduate school or continuing in science? Yeah, leaving science to go into science, I guess, is not the best idea. <laughs> Atypical, for sure. <laughs> Atypical, but, you know, working with great scientists at a young age is definitely good advice. And that's what I was able to do by, by actually taking some time off. When I was an undergrad, I was working with some really top scientists at a very early age. And of course, they were the ones that convinced me to go back and get a PhD and follow the normal route. But being exposed to, to such great thinkers in a, in a field station capacity was fantastic. So, so describe that, that normal route that you went back to. So, so what, what did you do for grad school and did you do postdocs and that kind of thing? I did. Then it became very, very normal very following normal? that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, I had to finish my undergrad and then um, I went to UC Davis um, in the ecology program and was there for four years working with Ford Dennison, and we were studying the evolution of cooperation between legumes and nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So we were very interested in trying to understand how legumes control the growth of rhizobia on their root system. So these are bacteria that can fix atmospheric nitrogen, right? So the atmosphere is mostly made up of nitrogen, and rhizobia are very good at breaking that triple bond and making it to a form that plants can use, a form of nitrogen that the plants can use but they're not all as good as one another. And some actually try to divert energy from the plant and use it for their um, reproduction. So they store a lot more compounds and do not fix a lot of nitrogen. And you can imagine that that's a brilliant evolutionary strategy, if, especially if everybody else on the root system is busy fixing nitrogen, because then you have a healthy host and you don't have to uh, contribute to that. So we are really trying to understand 
how do legumes control the spread of these cheating type behaviors in rhizobia? Let's turn now to some of your your work on other work on cooperations and symbioses. You've done this amazing set of things over the past few years, uh, thinking about evolution of cooperation among different groups and the sorts of rules that structure those cooperations. And I want to start by asking you about a, a somewhat older paper of yours that was in PNAS in 2015. This this paper focuses on major evolutionary transitions in in life, which a number of scientists have thought about pretty intensively over the last the last century. And you make the argument, and I think I agree, that a lot of these major transitions in life can be traced to new and major cooperative events. So an example would be things like um, eukaryotic cells arising as cooperation between formal archaeal and bacterial lineages, and then that cooperation leading to some kind of explosion in, in diversity. But that's only one example among, among many. And I just want to ask just sort of generally, like, what do you think are the conditions that promote that sort of cooperative behavior and and coming together of formerly separate lineages? Yeah, so these transitions in what we call individuality, they're very rare and they really require strict conditions. And the ones that interest me the most are when you have partners of different species. So again, if we're talking about symbiotic partnerships and you have organisms that are exchanging resources but are are different species and you can even with the most sort of extreme examples of different species coming together you can have these transitions in individuality and i think that the two major conditions that you need are that the partner interests really need to be aligned right that sounds very simple but over evolutionary time that can be you know difficult to achieve and the second is that the benefits of this type of let's call it integrated cooperation, they have to lead to to mutual dependence. So that means that both partners become so dependent on each other that actually the the loss of autonomy, the loss of being an individual... They can't go back. Yeah, they can't go back. That becomes more favorable. And what are the conditions that promote the initial formation of cooperation? I mean, it's not the case, as I remember from the paper, that cooperation is possible all the time everywhere. Exactly. So usually what, what has to happen is that a benefit needs to come that is harder to gain than the individual can get themselves. So, so basically, you need to have a situation where you've got strict mutual dependence that becomes beneficial. So usually that only happens when one partner can access some form of energy or resources that the other doesn't have access to. And that really starts the kind of chain link formation of this type of mutual dependence. So so what are some other examples besides the evolution of eukaryotic cells that illustrate this, this process? Well, usually we can see it very well, especially with, with symbioses, for example, um, insects, like let's take uh, mealybugs are a great example where they depend on bacterial endosymbionts for, for nutrient provisioning, right? So they need some kind of nutrient provisioning. In this sense, even those endosymbionts themselves can actually harbor their own endosymbionts, right? So it becomes sort of a nested, uh, if you will, process. But in this case, you can have similarities that almost it starts to resemble a host organelle. 
the dependence becomes so extreme that it's not clear when the bacterial partnership left being an individual and became an organelle, right? You've got similarities in genome size, in, in coding capacity, even the ability to import proteins that are produced by the host, which is, you know, a kind of a characteristic of an organelle. And so it, it's become a big debate in the literature is like, at what point does an endosymbiont become an organelle? Yeah, that's that's super interesting. We, we had a great conversation a couple of years ago with a then colleague of mine, a guy named John McCutcheon, who works on um, evolutionary trajectories of the sort that you just described, and he's especially interested in bacteriomes, bac bacterial symbionts of cicadas, and has used those as a model to think about the evolution of, of organelles like mitochondria and chloroplasts, because he's looking at sort of relatively new evolutionary associations, and you know they're not as ancient as chloroplasts or mitochondria, and yet they show a lot of this kind of similar pathways, right? So sort of genome reduction and you know extreme dependence of of host and and symbiont on on each other. I think that's just super interesting. Yeah, I mean, so John obviously John McCutcheon's work is really you know he's a, such a big leader in this field, and what's interesting is I think. You know, one of the big questions has always been, why do some partnerships become like physically and genomically and metabolically integrated and others just don't, right? There's some hosts that evolve these extreme dependency on their symbionts and others maintain facultative associations. So I think when we talk about those those questions, this idea, this individuality idea, you know, it's also called the major transition approach. It's really focused on those cases where groups of individuals that, yeah, they could previously replicate independently, they cooperate to form this new, even more complex organism. And trying to understand when hosts are under selection pressures for that, for that to happen and when not, when do they just maintain these facultative relationships, I think is one of the most interesting questions in evolutionary biology. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, maybe this is a giant question that's it's just too big for us to, to be able to say a ton about, but I, I'm I'm obviously intrigued by the coming together of these different lineages and, and how that solves and the doors that that opens as far as diversification and size. We haven't hit that one, uh, but, but that's a conspicuous one as well. What about the problem of regulation, though? I mean, how... How does, is there any sort of consistency in the steps by which two different lineages become integrated? Because it's pretty difficult to maintain life in a single organism, right? When you put two things together, there's there's conflict and then there's the opportunities. How, how do we think about that? What's the sort of most active research in that area now? You know, I think it's it's interesting to think about when these, when there is no major transition, it's likely because the host is, generally working simultaneously with multiple genotypes. That is very hard in terms of trying to reduce conflict. And this can be positive for the host, right? I mean, imagine if you're a host and you're working with, with multiple genotypes simultaneously, you can exploit a much wider range of environmental conditions, right? It increases your potential for conflict among those competing symbionts, but it also gives you an ability to exploit this wider range. So for example, when I talked about legumes and rhizobia, those the rhizobia are, are, you know, we're not talking about the, those two partners coming together to form a new individual. There are some selection pressures that actually favor them not coming together as one individual. And likely that's because the benefits of the partnership vary with environmental context, right? So as soon as you've got a variation in environmental context, let's say there's a high nitrogen availability in the soil, and it's cheaper to get nitrogen directly from the soil than from an endosymbiont, then you're going to tend to want to be able to get nitrogen that way. 
So again, it's this question of how much variation is there in environmental context and how does the benefits of those partnerships vary with that context? Yeah. And, and so to be clear, if the plants in that example you just gave, if they find themselves in high nitrogen soil, then they just kick the rhizobia out and get their nitrogen directly from the soil. Exactly, exactly. So they've evolved ways to, to have you know very intense sensing mechanisms for levels of nitrogen. Um, and so, yeah, when there's high nitrogen soils, then they're not going to put energy into supporting these nitrogen fixing symbionts. And of course, one of the cool things that happens with these hosts is that they've, they, you know, if, if that happens, that they always have to be determining the cost and benefit, this cost benefit analysis of actually interacting with the symbiont. Hosts evolve incredible ways of interacting with those symbionts. So, for example, with the legume rhizobia symbiosis, what we learned is that if the rhizobia failed to provide nitrogen, then the legumes actually suffocate them. They cut off their oxygen supply and reduce the fitness of those bacteria. So again, you've got all of these partnerships, but as long as there's some kind of variation in the environment, um, it's going to lead to different selection pressures. So, so maybe what you just said answers this, but it feels like in these systems, it would be very easy, at least at some points, for one partner to really exploit the other and you know become a drag, I guess, and, and if we think about the microbes exploiting the host, then that's almost as if they're becoming a disease instead of a, a, a symbiont. And I mean, is it true that, for example, if the host is dealing with lots of genotypes of a microbe, that some of those genotypes may evolve to be selfish and exploitative? Is, is that is that one of the risks of dealing with multiple genotypes? That's a huge risk, right? So we just had a paper out, I think it was last year, um, looking at, yeah, across all of these different beautiful host symbiont relationships, you know, are is, are there sort of key takeaways for how hosts are, who are facing these issues deal with this variation? And one of the things that we see across the tree of life is that hosts tend to evolve compartments that allow them to spatially separate these genotypes in a way that allows them to discriminate amongst them. If they're all mixed, let's say, in one in one area, it's very hard not only to discriminate who's doing what and what who's doing well and who's doing poorly, um, but it's also hard to you know control the reproductive success of those genotypes. As soon as you have different compartments, you've solved that problem. And so we see that not only in legumes, but we see it in, in squid systems, right? Would also have these light producing bacteria, but because of these compartments, um, the hosts can tell which bacteria are producing light and which ones aren't, and they can expel the ones that are poor symbionts. So compartmentalization is something that we see again and again across the tree of life in terms of being able to control symbionts. Yeah, that, that, that's super cool because it feels like that would also be a mechanism for them to be able to exploit the genetic diversity of the microbes and gain those benefits of having a wider range of, I don't know, metabolic inputs while still controlling who's getting their own resources, right? Exactly. It's very, it's very simple. It's very elegant and it's expensive, yeah. right? So, you know, it's making these compartments can be expensive, but it allows you a, a very precise level of control in terms of who and when you interact with those symbionts, right? It's not just who, but when when you need the symbionts and when you don't. So Toby, I mean, I, I find the upstream part of this super compelling because the host has to find 
these other organisms, distinguish these organisms from something else, and then employ different strategies for each one of them, presumably, you know, depending on what they are. As cool as I find that, I'm going to let that go because what you just said is even more interesting if you, well, especially if you can offer an example about well, what I'm hearing is a toolkit that you've got these different genotypes that are left to be hanging around. Presumably the host could get rid of some fraction if they didn't want them. But do you have an example where a, a plant or whatever it might be is employing these different groups depending on context? Am I understanding you right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, you're asking for a hard example, but I think I have one. I mean, these are very different compartments though, right? So I'm not quite sure if, if this will answer your question, but let me try. Let's take a plant as a great example, because on the one hand, it needs nitrogen and it, in, in legumes, they evolve these, these nodules that house rhizobia that provide the perfect conditions for them to fix nitrogen. But at the same time, they're also interacting with mycorrhizal fungi which are also endosymbionts, right? These fungi are penetrating into cells and forming structures for trade and depending on what kind of, and, and providing lots of phosphorus. So I didn't say that. So the fungus is growing out into the soil, foraging for all different kinds of nutrients, but generally bringing back nitrogen and phosphorus. So again, you can play with this type of tripart mutualism, as it's called, to think about these different compartments and which ones are more important under what conditions. So again, it's two different, very different types of compartments, um, but they're providing different resources. And the host has to be able to discriminate among them. And um, in the case of our, the arbuscule, it's providing sugars and fats to the fungi in a very ephemeral structure called the arbuscule, which then um, collapses after six or seven days and forms in a new compartment. So it's very, very dynamic uh, situation. And you can imagine that the host over, you know, hundreds of millions of years of evolution, especially with the, with the fungi, has become very good at discriminating between fungi that are providing lots of nutrients and those that aren't. But it needs these different types of compartments to get at these different types of resources. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's super cool. As you're saying this, I'm I'm have this vision of the host kind of being in control, right? It's got these two different kinds of symbionts and it's somehow orchestrating interactions. But couldn't you also imagine that the two different microbial fungal and microbial symbionts, you know, are establishing their own rules and their own ways of interacting within the environmental context of being together inside this thing, this host that is the plant. Definitely. So I'm glad we got to this fast enough because this is exactly how our labs study these types of interactions is actually not from the host point of view, but from the microbial point of view. So we're really interested in trying to understand the strategies that these microbes have evolved to be able to maximize the amount that they get from the hosts. And wow, they can do some really creative things in terms of, you know, if we even, we could even use the word arms race, if you will, right? In terms of the, the host controlling how much resources go to these uh, symbionts, but then the symbionts evolving really uh, fantastic ways of, of manipulating the hosts that really allow them to, to maximize the amount that they're getting from, from that partnership. You know, it's something that I think you, you mentioned in the 2015 paper is the honesty of these signals that, that hosts and, and microbes are using. How much do we know about the cheating that goes on via these different signals that are being used? That seems like a low-hanging fruit to be exploited for opportunity. Yeah, definitely. And so that's why when we do talk about... Um, 
we do talk about these symbioses, we're, we tend not to actually focus so much on signals because signals can evolve and then they can mean different things and then they can be used for different, they can be co-opted. But when we look at um, how the, the hosts and these microbes tend to interact, it's usually based on the actual exchange of resources. So it's not a signal necessarily attached to the resources, but it's a signal of the resources themselves. So again, it's the actual nitrogen, it's the actual phosphorus that's coming through because many different microbes can evolve a way of saying, I'm a good, I'm a good partner. And so, for example, when we look at the legume rhizobia symbiosis, we call it kind of a two sieve process, right? The first sieve is what we call partner choice. And that's sort of this back and forth um, between the plant and the and the rhizobial strain to see, okay, is it a compatible match? Is, the, is this going to form a, uh, an actual nodule? But once the nodule is formed, that's when the honesty comes in, because that is when it, when it is solely about how the resource level of resource exchange. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So you're saying that the, the thing that's getting traded is not information. It's the actual thing, the currency that matters. And so it's like totally honest because that's all there is. No IOUs, the real deal, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we want to we want to turn uh, even more broadly to talking about AMF, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And maybe can you just give our listeners like a, a one minute summary of what, what are AMF and what are the roles that they play in ecosystems with plants? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the, it's a it's a symbiosis that's evolved between plant roots and what are called mycorrhizal fungi. So we study arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are also called AMF. And this symbiosis it evolved some 475 million years ago, and it's really fundamental. It's a it's a building block to all terrestrial life, right? So even people people tend not to know this, but fungal mycelium actually served as a plant root system for tens of millions of years until plants could evolve their own, right? So actually, fungi are the ancestral state of plants, right? Not roots. But as this as this you know the rise of these plant fungal partnerships happened in the past, it, it, it corresponded with an about a 90% reduction in atmospheric CO2 levels, because what was actually happening was that the plants were fixing CO2 and feeding it to these to these fungal networks. Um, and so now today, about 80 to 90% of all plant species form a trade symbiosis with these mycorrhizal fungi. And, and the fungi are providing nutrients, right? They're building these vast hyphal networks in the soil. So hyphae, they're also called mycelium. They're very fine. They're like, the individual strands of kind of a spider's web, you know, thinner than a thread of cotton. But a handful of soil can contain about 100 kilometers of this fungal network. So very, very dense. So when we think about the living biomass of soils, for example, 50%, up to 50% of the living biomass of soils is these fungal networks. So these huge, you know, hugely important components of underground systems, uh, but also incredible evolutionary dynamics between them. So they've, they've really been a model system in our lab for trying to understand uh, conflict and cooperation. We're really interested in the strategies of trying to understand the trade of resources between plant roots and fungal networks. That's staggering about the, the biomass of these organisms. What's the relationship with diversity for any given plant is most of the biomass comprised of a single species of AMF or how, how many different species are we talking about? No, very diverse, very, very diverse. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on, on the plant and the 
what you know what kind of uh, ecosystem we're in but anywhere from five to 25 different species can be on a single uh, root system so so pretty diverse um and then you know, just hundreds of meters of hyphal threads that are connecting different plants simultaneously. So again, this is a very different system from an evolutionary vantage point from the legume rhizobia system because it, the fungus is connected to multiple individuals at the same time. So even if one plant cuts off its resources, it's not necessarily a dead end for that fungus. And so it leads to, to more, even more interesting dynamics. And, and the underground network, I mean, if sort of if we looked under the soil of a typical eastern North American forest, there's lots and lots of different plants above ground. But how much diversity is there below ground? And, and how much integration is there in the trees that are above ground with the fungi that are below ground, you're sort of across species? Do our birch interconnected with oak, which are interconnected with pine? Or how, how does that look? Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of that. So there's two real major types of mycorrhizal fungi. There's the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and those are tend to be associated with herbaceous plants and grasses, but also with deciduous forests like maples and things like that. So those are all attached to arbuscular mycorrhizae. And then there's the ectomycorrhizal fungi, and those are quite interesting because they don't penetrate into the cell, but instead they form a herring, what's called a herring net on the outside of roots, and they tend to trade more more nitrogen than, than phosphorus. And these are associated with you know, needle type trees, your pines, your firs, but also with oaks. So again, there's, there's some uh, different uh, plant families there that associate with, with ectomycorrhizae. And those, when you ask, when you start asking about fungal diversity, it's like, <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> yes, and yes, and yes. Like, it's, it's not even worth a conversation yet, because we're so far away. I think people are saying now we've described about 10% of the, you know, the kingdom of fungi, right? It's just such a vastly understudied diversity that it's quite difficult to answer those questions. Um, and so really, one of the major pushes that we're going to have in the future is, is trying to map out these diversity, where the diversity hotspots, you know, what are associated with diversity? Do you have high carbon sequestration? Do you have tighter nutrient cycling in diverse communities, right? Trying to link diversity to, to ecosystem function. It's, it's, it's really hard how unknown it is. We just know that they're um, incredibly dense, like, you know, a single gram of soil, that's 90 meters of hyphal threads, right? Sometimes I try to picture it like um, a grassland is associated with these arbuscular ones. And if you have a, a hectare of this grassland, it's it's the equivalent to the length of 12, about 13 million Amazon rivers, the length of, of that, under one hectare of grasslands. Yeah, it's astonishing. And actually, to stick with that river analogy, these networks are basically nutrient rivers. And so what we do in my group is work with a group in um, biophysicists here in Amsterdam, a group called that's led by uh, Tom Shimizu at, at a university uh, institute called EMOF. And we are trying to quantify how these nutrient rivers um, are flowing. And it's really beautiful. It's, it's, it's just stunning when you see how complex and beautiful these dynamics are under your feet. 
And the thing I think that makes it the most sort of visually stunning is that most, most fungi have what are called septa, right? Those are the, the cell walls that would go across and break along mycelium into sort of different compartments. But here it's like an open pipe system. It's really like a river. It's just it's just an open flow with so many different junctions. And when you actually get to, to spend time looking at these at these nutrient rivers, you see that it they're moving two directions at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even I'm stunned just just saying it, right? It's like it's like an anti-parallel movement in a single pipe. So, and then of course it makes sense, right? The carbon has to go be going one way away from the root towards the growing tips. At the same time, the phosphorus and nitrogen have to be going the other way. Um, so you get this anti-bidirectional um, movement of different nutrient streams in a single pipe. So that's why we're working with physicists to try to understand how the fungi does that, how it controls these flows. And not only is it moving two directions at the same time, but it has this dynamic nature to it where entire flows will go all the way to the left and then they'll switch directions and then go all the way to the right. And uh, you're following these particles inside these nutrient rivers to get some kind of indication, some kind of way of quantifying uh, what's going on in there. It's, it's like trying to learn a new language. With, there's no dictionary, right? The fungus is moving these resources in a way that we're trying to uh, understand. You need your fungal Rosetta Stone here to exactly. break this all down. Um, well, I want to dig into the details of how phosphorus moves in these these networks uh, and and focus that on your recent paper in Current Biology. But but before we do that, can you just say how, how do these things actually move inside these pipes? Like if you know if nutrients are moving along, what what's moving them? Yeah, what's moving them exactly? Right. That's exactly what we're trying to uh, to figure out. So it looks like there's some uh, some form of molecular motor that is running along tracks on either side. And you can kind of see this at cross sections where the hyphae splits and some particles will go one direction. Yeah, just like we, how you would have tracks on a railroad. And if they're on different sides of the tube and one tube has a, a junction and, and takes a turn, you can kind of follow that track and that particle down a different path. And, and so are these like motors crawling along microtubule networks? Exactly. And and do we know what the molecular motors are? We don't. I mean, how can this be the most ubiquitous symbiosis on Earth, is what we say. And we have no idea how the nutrients are moving. But yeah, molecular motors, uh, microtubules, you know, we can we can say these words, but actually, you know, the, the true dynamics of, of, of the loading and unloading is, is not known now. And it's more than just molecular motors, because we are observing speeds that go way beyond what a molecular motor can do. And so there's also some sort of contribution of pressure. There's a pressure-driven bulk flow at the same time. And how that is under control of the fungi is really interesting, right? Because it's a pressure. And we know that these, these networks, they provide a lot of water as well, right? So they are, so there's definitely pressure, uh, a, a very important pressure component. But you can imagine, you know, I say, oh, we should know by now, but actually it's, it's really hard to study these networks in the lab because they are what we call obligate biotrophs, right? Big word, but all that means is that the fungi are obligately dependent on the root system for all of their carbon. So you're not only, you're bringing in the whole system into the lab. You need to grow the root at the same time as the fungal network. We can't just grow fungi. Yeah, ma maximizes your experimental pain, right? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Wait, so before we move on, so so 
uh, I'm really intrigued by this idea of uh, water flow and pressure pressure driven flows of particles because that would seem to contradict this idea of bidirectional flow, right? You can't have sure does pressure waves going in the same same in, in opposite directions in the same tube. Exactly, exactly. But you'll see these bursts of pressure where the in, where it looks as if the entire um, cytoplasmic contents are moving in one direction. And then it will it will stop, and then you'll see kind of this background molecular motor potentially going, and then the pressure will start again. I, I really I invite you <laughs> I invite you to look at some of the videos of of this um, of these flows. I have on your website, and they're stunning. It's like just just really amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. It makes your brain hurt to like Art saying. I mean, how in the world is that possible? It does it does it look real at all? Have you gotten to the the point yet of having the chance to ask about efficiency? I mean, if that even makes sense, because yeah, it's just so bizarre that they can reverse. How how far are they away from the optimal of doing such a thing? Although we don't, I know, have a lot of precedent about doing such a thing, so maybe optimal is crazy. Yeah, exactly. It's hard where we we try to avoid the words, you know, maximizing and optimal, because with these guys, we really can't we can't we can't tell what their state is. So to to try to measure against that is is difficult. But it's a great question. Um, I was giving a talk in in Princeton, and I was showing these videos and showing how much the the fungus seemed to be moving the contents within its hyphae back and forth. And there was um, a scientist in the audience, Howard Stone, who who is um, yeah, a brilliant uh, biophysicist that studies these these types of dynamics. And he was asking if the fungus does this, you know, to calculate, to help calculate what resources are actually inside that fungal network. So you can imagine that it's very different. Soil is incredibly heterogeneous. So you've got hot patches of resources and, and very very low resource patches. And the fungus has to basically be able to understand where to move those resources to maximize their gain. And so does it help to then sort of move the resources around in the network to get some kind of calculation of, of how much is available and, and how that would change your strategy? So that's something that we have, you know, one of these interdisciplinary grants um, to, to try to understand is, is the fungus sort of actively it's definitely using a lot of energy to, to move these resources around. And we've got some very cool experimental evidence suggesting that, yeah, it'll move phosphorus from one side of the network across to the other side to increase its carbon gain from the host route. So rather than trading locally, it moves the, 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 the phosphorus around to a place where plant demand is higher and gets more carbon for it. But how does it calculate that? Yeah, well, super smart. Let's just dig into this this paper that I keep mentioning, the current biology one. So this is a, a I think 2019 paper led by Matthew Whiteside, and you guys did this what appears to me to be just super clever thing of um, developing a nice experimental technique for measuring where phosphorus goes, and then manipulating relative levels of phosphorus availability as a way of trying to deduce the rules by which the the hyphae are moving phosphorus around. And maybe let's just start with the experimental setup, which I thought was really amazing. So you had these um, sort of arenas where you can put plant roots and hyphae and differences in phosphorus. So can you just describe the, the layout of that experiment? Of course. So we had a, um, a, triple, a triple compartment Petri plate. So again, what we can do in this symbiosis is we can grow the fungal network with a, a root system that doesn't photosynthesize. So this makes our life a little bit easier because the root system can take up carbon directly from the media and then put it in a form that 
is that it can feed to the fungus. So the fungus has no access to that to that carbon, but the root system is keeping it alive by feeding this this fungus. And so then we colonized that root system with a large fungal network and had it grow into these two separate fungal fungus only compartments. And we, that's very important. And so the roots just can't get into those those compartments. Exactly. So the so you can imagine the roots staying in sort of the upper you know uh, top third of the petri plate and the fungus growing down into the other two halves. And that's where we added this tagged phosphorus. And so it took us a, a few years working with, with Matthew Whiteside to develop this fluorescent technique that relies on quantum dots that basically produce very pure, bright fluorescence uh, when hit with a UV source. Depending on the core inside these quantum dots, they emit different wavelengths. So basically you can tag something like phosphorus with different colors depending on uh, what quantum dots you add. So it allows us to track phosphorus across the network. Right. And once the phosphorus from different sources starts to mix, you still can distinguish based on the wavelength of the fluorescence. Exactly. So we were using something called apatite, which is a rock form of phosphate that the fungi are are good at, at taking up into their hyphae and then transporting it. And um, so we were using either red tagged phosphorus or the cyan colored tagged phosphorus. And and then, as you said, we set we set up three different treatments. So either the resources were very even across the fungal network, so they were spread 50-50, or they were spread in amount where one patch was higher than the other, so it was 70-30, or it was very extreme, uh, where we put 90% of the resources in one compartment and 10% in the other. And because those resources were labeled with different colors, we could track where they went and, um, and how they were traded with the root system. Hmm. So, drum roll, tell us what happened there. <laughs> this is a tree. <laughs> yeah, so what we found was that uh, inequality in these resources, right, when there was really extreme inequality, so 90% of the resources on one side of the fungal network compared to 10, um, the first thing it did was it increased trade, right? So what does that mean? It's, it's so interesting, rather. So somehow when the resources are homogeneously spread across the network, trade was at a certain level. As soon as you increased that uh, resource distribution so that one side had higher than the other, that stimulated the plant to give more carbon. But what happened actually, it's not that it just overall gave more carbon, but instead what we found was that um, it was giving more carbon to the resource poor side of the fungal network. So actually that was complete opposite of what we had expected. We just expected the resource rich side to get bigger and bigger with more carbon being sent to that side. But actually what was happening, we found that because we tagged the resources in different colors, we could see that it was first going over to the resource poor side where it was then traded. And because of that, it was getting more carbon per unit of phosphorus. The plant was providing more carbon per unit of phosphorus where resources were low. So, so basically the per, the, the per unit cost of a phosphorus molecule goes up for the plant when phosphorus is poor. And, and, and the hyphae are exploiting that by shuttling the phosphorus to where it can get a higher price for them. Exactly. So that's why it's quite interesting when you ask questions about efficiency and things, right? Because it does, it, it's, that's an energy intensive process to, to move it across. And so again, we really want to understand this in a, you know, we can try to understand it in sort of a, you know, with an economic perspective. But again, it's, it's, it's an observation, right? And it was, when you do these experiments, they have to be like 
achingly precise, right? They're just, and they take a really long time to set up and they take a really long time to analyze. But that that finding was was really striking. We were very surprised. Well, so I'm trying to find out, maybe it comes down to the nuance of the experimental design that I missed, but isn't another way to say this, that the plant is willing to pay a higher cost to a mycorrhizae that sort of has, it's a less quality, it's, it's more at risk? I mean, is the, is the plant fully connected to all of the mycorrhizae or is it not really able to access both the low and high phosphorus conditions? Right. So it's not ever able to access directly the low and high phosphorus. So it's only able to get the phosphorus through the fungal network. Okay. Well, why should it ever pay a higher cost? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you expect the sort of evolution of a position where the plant's just not going to pay that? Or is that just not an option? It, it always needs phosphorus. There's no other source for it. It's still going to pay this high cost no matter what. Exactly. I mean, that's what we're trying to understand. So, so you can kind of think the modularity of it, right? Like how connected is it? It's it's about two organisms trying to sense their strategies over spatial and you know temporal landscapes. And so, yeah, this was just sort of one experiment where it definitely it was very clear that more carbon was going to the fungus on this side. But yeah, under you know, when we look out in nature, is the same thing happening? You're talking about this tiny little root system with no photosynthetic top in a petri plate. So really for us, the big frontier is trying to do these types of experiments out in nature, right? Because so many things could be different, right? And you're and exactly right. Like maybe the plant has evolved to say, okay, no, I, if I can keep getting phosphorus on this side, I'll be the one to take it on this side and then I will move it across. So again, it's, it's really about scaling. And so one of our biggest I think, yeah, our biggest frontier in this field is trying to take these very small scale experiments in petri plates and ask, is the same thing happening in nature? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask a related question, and this circles back to something you said just a few minutes ago about the costs of transport across these HIFL networks. As I am envisioning it, these petri dishes that you were using in the experiments are pretty small, and we're talking about hyphae moving things, you know, a number of centimeters. So at some point, presumably the costs become prohibitively large to move resources many meters or tens of meters. And so is there a limit to how far these HIFL networks would be willing to move resources around in order to get the best price? It's almost like you're reading off the script of my lab meeting. <laughs> <laughs> You've been hacked. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what we're trying to figure out now, right? Is is So we're, be, I mean, working with biophysicists is, you know, for any biologist, right? I would definitely suggest some interdisciplinary, just go for it because I have learned so much about not only sort of, it's just such a different perspective, but the tools that they have available are just mind-blowing. So we, um, as I said, I work with Tom Shimizu and we have this incredible postdoc named Loreto Galvez and she's built an imaging robot that basically allows us to track the growth of these networks in sort of 40 plates simultaneously across any kind of artificial landscape we want to make and then hone in on the flows right inside those networks so you've got this topology which is like your trade network so that's exactly why i'm i'm interested in your question art because you've got this trade network and then you have to figure out is that at what point is it no longer efficient to be moving it towards this route and move and instead maybe transferring it to another route is there some sort of absolute level yeah. where that sort of sets the spatial scale of this movement right? exactly so it's not only the spatial scale but like we're looking what's cool about these networks is they can also fuse together 
if if they're genetically um, like, right? Not They don't even have to be the exact same genotype. They just can be close genotypes and they confuse. And then there's all of this resource sharing and these cross linkages. And so again, you can imagine that if a, if a network is growing out, these cross linkages can really help it move resources, increase the efficiency to, to get those back to the host plant. But we're trying to figure out sort of the symbiotic rules of topology, right? What is the, what is, what does it mean to be a symbiotic network? It's different than a free living fungi, right? It has to do different things. It has to, it has to calculate different things. And it has this one sort of hub that it has to get to its resources to, which are, which are the roots. And of course those can vary in space, but yeah, how does that change the way it builds its topology? And then how does that change how the flows happen inside that topology? Right. Do you know anything in the, in the Petri dish setups? Do you know anything now about how the networks are gauging inequality? I mean, that alone is, is pretty compelling. And I would think if it's ever going to be tractable, you better start there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So these poor fungi, we, you know, we kind of put them through the ringer, right? Like we try to do all of these manipulations and see how they respond. And it's all just kind of a work in progress. I mean, again, these things are very difficult to, uh, to grow and to, to follow over time. And if you even just follow one, I mean, we've got a, a PhD student who's following even just one network over time, and you're getting into the hundreds of thousands, even millions of nodes that he's trying to track simultaneously. So we're getting terabytes of data on these network structures and then trying to sort of decode, you know, why are they doing what they do. And this is the this is really important that it's time resolved, right? So of course we can grow a network and say, okay, this is what it looks like now. But because we're we're taking images every four hours, you're literally watching the building of a of a road system. But decoding those terabytes of data has turned out to be, um, yeah, well, <laughs> difficult. <I would laughs> <say>. Tricky. <laughs> I want to. I think I think we want to jump and sort of try to generalize some of these trade rule arguments you're you're making and apply them to human systems. But before we go there, um, let, let me just ask one more question about currency. So, so we've talked mostly about phosphorus and nitrogen trading. Are there other more obscure things that the plants need that the fungi can access? I mean, are there other, you know, tens or hundreds of currencies that are involved or are nitrogen and phosphorus really the main, the main ones? Yeah, not tens of hundreds, but they definitely, the, the, the fungi are linked with many more benefits than just nitrogen and phosphorus. So for example, we know that they're important in heavy metal tolerance, right? They can actually sequester heavy metals. We know they're very important in water uptake, as I said, so incredibly important in water relations, pathogen protection. And as soon as you start getting into pathogen <laughs> protection, right? Like the secondary metabolites, that's, I guess, when you get into the tens of hundreds of, you know, potential uh, interactions actions that this could lead to. And so, yeah, it's not really the focus of our group, but there's really compelling evidence that when the connection with these fungal networks is made, that that really helps plants upregulate their own defenses. And some of those times that actually, that, that upregulation produces secondary metabolites that may be even traveling across the network. You know, I always say it's not, it's not plants necessarily warning each other because that shows intent, but they could be picking up on cues that are passively leaking across the network, for example. So I think those are, that's a very different way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's sort of information flows, yeah. Exactly. And so it's picking up on cues. It's eavesdropping on, on your neighbors because you are connected, right? And so if a plant does get attacked, it will upregulate its defenses. And whatever response that may have, that, that impact could be felt across the fungal network.
so how do we think about these observations in the context of human economics? These systems have had millions of years of practice. Are there uh, consultancies out there now using evolutionary thinking to uh, improve portfolios? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's always really hard to you know use these fungi as analogies for for humans. And you know, I think we can ask some potentially useful questions. I'm not sure how, you know, I like asking questions. I'm not how, sure how useful the answers are. But like in our lab, we can really, we can figure out like what drives economies to break apart, right? If there's this symbiosis, like what, how can we perturb the system that it's no longer useful to both partners? You know, we can ask how do small local markets evolve in these systems? Again, because it's a physical movement of resources, which is a bit different than our economy now. Um, but you can ask about like optimal, you know, there I am using it, but what size, the number of trading partners that actually increases market exchange. Uh, so there's some theory coming out of our group that like if you have more fungal partners, that actually may be very positive for plants in terms of phosphorus uptake because they're competing simultaneously to provide and potentially undercutting the cost of phosphorus. And so that's actually pretty useful in like sustainable agriculture, right? Instead of just having a root system um, inoculated with one fungi, but instead have these sort of diverse, healthy communities where competition may benefit the plant in terms of how much phosphorus is is provided. You know, you know, it's nice. We can bring an economic system into the lab. We can watch these trade strategies evolve. We can study tipping points, right? And, you know, if we really push sort of sci-fi, then, yeah, we can try to understand the algorithms of the fungal trade because they're decoupled from any kind of emotion. They're decoupled from any sort of anticipation. And they've been under selection for, for hundreds of millions of years. So, so there is something about if we can figure out the trade algorithms and the way that the networks form in terms of efficiencies, then that could be helpful, I think, in the future. Well, I mean, I probably a, a biased perspective here, but that all makes sense. And the other piece that seems conspicuous to me that I would imagine is difficult in sort of basic human economics is the, is the tractability of your system, that you can do experiments with a network, right, an evolved network even, that'll allow you to get traction on what for human economies is going to be so many other things, not just to mention the cognitive dimensions about how those operate. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that we can use, you know, that working with quantum dots is, is, is very tricky. And so it's not the easiest experiments to set up, but now we're up to three colors simultaneously. So you can also do things over time, right? You can add different colors at different times. Um, so that gives us a nice temporal resolution. And again, yeah, you can do some spatial things. So it's definitely, it's it's opening up sort of that black box of, of trade. And instead of just saying, okay, the before and after, now we can kind of look at the interesting strategies in between. Let me stay with the sci-fi theme here for a second and um, ask about parallels between the way the internet works and the way these fungal hyphal networks work. So from your perspective, I, I guess the way to ask this is, are, are there insights to be had for the World Wide Web from studying the Wood Wide Web? Is, is there anything there? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, first, I, I tend to be sh a little bit shy about using the term Wood Wide Web, mostly because I really want to get across this idea that these guys are everywhere, right? It's not just in woody systems. They're in grasslands. Yeah. I know grasslands. Yeah, yeah. fair, fair enough. Okay. I'm just making a dumb joke here, but let's just, let's just go <laughs> yeah. with it. No, but the other thing that I, uh, why, why I'm, I'm harping on this uh, is that when we use analogies to the internet, then these fungi come across as passive accessories. And if there's one thing I've tried to make clear, you know, throughout my research career is that they're anything but passive. 
right? They are actively moving these resources and evolving strategies to help them reproduce. And so it's hard to compare, like, of course, at the most superficial level, topology. As soon as we, I mean, when you, we're talking about these these networks and how we're using this imaging robot and it's all it's all nice and good but that's we're still doing it on a, a 2D plane right as soon as you know we've got we've got a grant now to start doing more like 3D x-rays of these types of things because then i think the topology will become even you know terabytes of data in an hour right it is a bit it is it is so dense and it is so complex and we've been really limiting it to growing on a single plane. Uh, as soon as we go into that 3D space, I think we're going to learn a lot about topologies of efficient networks. Yeah. So just if I can articulate your objection to this idea of analogizing these things, in, in the World Wide Web, the, the wires that are connecting all of it, the fiber optic cables, are just passive participants. They're links between nodes. And what you're saying is that the difference in these fungal networks is that the wires themselves have interests and in evolved strategies and physiologies that are changing the, the network. Yeah, Okay. exactly. And that there, it's a living network, right? It's That's fantastic, right? When we talk about the internet, it's us that are laying these cables and trying to decide where to go. But this network, it's, it's yeah, it's under selection. And so it's, its body is its topology. And so that, that, I think, can lend an even more interesting perspective on network theory because there's nothing passive about it. Okay, so then that makes sense, Toby, about... Um... Your, your recent uh, effort that went to this new nonprofit called SPUN, the Society for Protection of Underground Networks, to you know collect the data and maybe shift the mindset to thinking about living networks as opposed to other versions of um, the, the World Wide Web. I got to say that, well, first, the webpage is just absolutely amazing. We've already alluded to the cool videos, which are there, among other things. It's a striking page, but it lists out a lot of the ambitious goals that you have. And I guess one of them, maybe the most prominent, is to map all the fungal networks on the earth. How are you going to do that? And how long will that take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, we have to clarify that what we're trying to do is map the biodiversity. So not map the physical, to, you know, topography. Not yet. Not yet. Right. We're going to start with like a, we're going to start with a millimeter by millimeter uh, of soil, but actually mapping the biodiversity hotspots and, and the biodiversity in general hasn't been done. And for us, that's just shocking. So these fungal networks, they've really been, I think, a global blind spot in, in conservation and climate agendas. At the minimum, we know that they're moving about 5 billion tons of carbon from the atmosphere down into plants and into the, into the fungal networks. If these fungal networks disappear, then we're losing a, a really large carbon sink. So yeah, our aim is to actually try to start mapping where exactly these fungal networks are. And we do that by sending out what we're calling myconauts, right? So <laughs> I love it. Myco meaning <laughs> fungi and uh, not meaning explorer uh, to and working with local communities to actually sample the soil systems in some of these most remote areas and areas that are facing, you know, expansion from agriculture or deforestation, but are predicted uh, biodiversity hotspots. And so we have to get in there fast and figure out what networks are there and, and sort of what they're doing. Are there places on the planet that you think are 
deserving of particular attention where we just not put the effort before and something about the climate suggests that there's a lot of diversity there? Yeah, definitely. So it's not even that I think like it's yeah, there's <laughs> I know because what we're doing right now is we're working with Global Fungi, which is um, an open uh, source platform where fungal reads are deposited on um, when papers are published. And so using about 10,000 global samples um, from their database, we made the first predicted biodiversity hotspots of, of both um, the arbuscular and ectomycorrhizal fungi. And they're surprising. So I think one of those maps is up on our website at spun.earth. And we've identified about 10 biodiversity hotspots that we really need to move fast on. Places like Siberia, right, where you, you know, it's different than, let's say, you know, the Amazon actually looks like it might have a biodiversity hotspot as well. But places like grasslands that you're not expecting, you know, above ground biodiversity to be so high, but actually below ground biodiversity is is really high. So we're, we're trying to kind of cause a, a mind shift, right, that if we know that I think the current estimate is 25% of all species on Earth live underground, right? So there's this huge biodiversity underground, but yet we're not conserving those ecosystems um, for what they hold below ground. And I think we'd have actually a shift in sort of some conservation priorities if we can identify these biodiversity hotspots. And someday we actually imagine that you can have a, you know, a conservation easement based on biodiversity below ground <laughs> alone, right? And so it might not look like a lot above ground, but we know that this is a hotspot. And so, yeah, we're, we're really advocating for a big mind shift. So in terms of um, disturbance to, to fungal networks, what, what would you say are the major factors that that are causing that disturbance? Is it, you know, changes in land use? Is it, you know, invasive plant species coming into new areas? Is it climate change itself? Yeah, keep going, keep going. Uh, just, yeah, okay, it's all, all okay, all of those things. Do, I mean, but do we know what the worst thing is? Well, we're particularly worried about agricultural expansion. I mean, agriculture is really harsh on these communities, not only because of the chemical inputs, you know, fungicide, right? But tillage, right? Tillage is really harsh in terms of these networks. It can select for kind of this weedy mycorrhizal fungi that, you know, don't make these sort of robust, thick networks. And yet we know that up to 80% of a plant's phosphorus can be supplied by these fungal networks. So it's like, it's this life support system, but at the same time, our current practices are really destroying them. So yeah, so we're worried about agricultural expansion. You know, obviously logging has really negative impacts. There's some data suggesting about, you know, when you compare logged plots to unlogged plots, about a 95% decrease in abundance of these networks, right? And they come back, they're resilient, right? They can come back, but not always the same levels of diversity. And sometimes it can take decades. And so, you know, basically trying to get enough data to inform practices like logging, like, okay, we, you know, if you leave 10% of the stand, that's associated with, you know, 50% decreases in diversity. But if you leave 25% of a stand, then that, you know, may su support 75%. So we want to be able to provide metrics to you know, managed uh, ecosystems, so agriculture and logging, and so that we can actually, yeah, add this to sort of the one of the, the reasons that we, we need to really lead different management practices that sort of take a fungal-centric point of view. So Toby, for the, the folks that are listening to this, are there things that they can do? I mean, presumably there's a lot of information on the, the website, but is there something else that you would advise? Yeah, of course. Like, so 
when I see bare soil, right? It's like seeing a naked person. You got to cover up the soil. It's like I sometimes see it and I think just cover it with, with leaves and plants. You know, obviously these networks get fed by plants. So um, native plants are always very good. Uh, just don't leave your soil bare. Don't use chemicals. Even things like Roundup, right? I mean, in Europe, it's outlawed. I don't know, right? It's, it can be very, very bad for, for these networks. Uh, there's data on, on some of these very common chemicals that people add to their lawns. Um, but also in urban environments, right? Advocating for things like living roofs, for green roofs. I, this is very surprising, but actually the there's some beautiful data that suggests that um, these spores spread airily in the air, right? As long as you can keep kind of a green corridor for these spores to spread, um, you'll help keep that conductivity through cities, you know? So we're very anti-concrete and things, but it's, if we put some green, some living green surfaces uh, through cities, that, that can really help. And again, I guess we're, we're promoting this idea that, you know, we're, we're building up the pipeline where people can, can help us by sampling in, in their neighborhoods. Yeah. So speaking of people helping, I mean, this, so sponge just sounds really grand and really awesome. If, if people want to get involved, what, what should they do? Yeah. So definitely what's the easiest is to, is to go to spun.earth and join, right? We're, we're just gathering names and, uh, and starting to train myconauts, you know, that's definitely what we're trying to do. Our goal is about 10,000 samples in the next uh, 18 months. We're still at very early stages. You know, we just got a big founding sort of capital to help us get up the open access, um, system. And it's going to be a little bit of time before people can send in soil samples still. But we're working a lot with different research programs that are already doing lots of sampling and have already extracted some of these communities and trying to get them to to upload as well. So just we're really trying to get a global picture of these fungal networks and um, and, and they can they can help by advocating and, and, and joining. Excellent. Well, hey, Toby, we're sensitive to your time. This has been a, an absolutely fantastic um, conversation. I have learned a ton, and it's just really cool um, work. We wish you the best with Spun. We're looking forward to hearing more about it. But we always give our guests a chance to sort of have the final word. Is there anything else that you would like to say that we didn't ask you? It's like, it's like when you ask me who my favorite scientist is. <laughs> <laughs> you could just take a pass. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I really, I had a wonderful time talking uh, to you both today. So thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Toby. Really Good. loved it. Thanks thank a lot. you so much. Thank you for listening to the episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, well, we'd love to hear that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk to Hankyan Honing about the origins of musicality. Are animals able to perceive the beat and other elements of music like pitch and tone? Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demry for producing the episode. Thanks also to Brad Van Paraden for writing the script, and Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, Natasha Damright, and Kyle Smith for helping to produce the episode. Keating Shimeri produces our awesome cover art. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. 